the expression from the music inspired me so much to take risks and it inspired damn near the whole rap game. Hello again, I'm Adam Unz. You may know me as the host of The Opus, and now I'm bringing my own show, The Spark Parade, to the Consequence Podcast Network. I speak with artists and creatives about the cultural artifacts that spark their personal interest and creativity, whether it's music, books, movies, video games, or any other kind of art. I've never spoke about it in this amount of detail. I'm suddenly going, oh my God, I'm blowing my own mind here, Christ. It's, it's actually a giant part of my life. By talking about the things we love, we share and discover insights into our personality and the things that drive us. It's just magic, really. I mean, frustrating and it makes some people angry, but I don't think anyone's ever done anything like it. I speak with people like Connor Robers, Phoenix's Thomas Mars, Chris Gethard, Helen Hong, Adrian Young, and more, so their sparks of inspiration can start a fire in you. I'm grateful for those who continue to put our history and who we are as a people in the forefront and make you see it. Find the Spark Parade wherever you get your podcasts. Hey pod people, Engineer Adam here, jumping in for a quick second to let you know about the brand new all-in-one platform for all of you creative podcasters out there. Anchor makes it easier than ever to make a podcast. It's free to use and has all the creation tools you need to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. Plus, Anchor will get your podcast set up on Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, wherever podcasts are found. Even better, Anchor helps you connect with sponsors, even if you're just starting out. It's the perfect choice for podcasters, so make sure to check it out. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. That's A-N-C-H-O-R dot F-M. Back to the show. The Star Wars universe is constantly expanding. But how the heck are you going to keep tabs on it without a holocron? And where in the rim can I score the juiciest news and rumors? Ah, you seek State of the Empire, Consequence of Sound's Star Wars Speculation Podcast, where we look for news in Alderaan places. We dig into the Sarlacc pit of the internet for the hottest intel in the galaxy far, far away. Make Indiana Jones inquiries and keep watch for the latest on Willow. Find us on consequenceofsound.net or wherever you procure fine podcasts. It's the show you're looking for. Consequence Podcast Network. Hello to all of my beloved pod people out there. I am your host, Leo Phillips, and this is This Must Be The Gig, your little backstage pass to the world of live music and performance. Each week, I bring you a fascinating conversation about the world of music, the world of performance, and that could really mean a festival founder or an actor, a comedian, a choreographer, a musician, and much more. But before we get into this week's guest, zzz, guests, let's check in with our constant companions, zzz, here at the TMBTG studios, engineer Adam and pod puppy. Buffy. Hello, Adam. Hi, I'll speak for Buffy as well. Um, Why? Bark, bark, woof, woof. Oh, real funny. You're a real (laughs) funny guy. Yeah, it's always great to be in the studio with the little pod puppy. Also, I'm really excited by this week's episode. Why? It has a really personal connection to my life. Did you know that? No, I didn't actually. Well, as someone who has very frequently been compared to a Sasquatch or Bigfoot <laughs> or a Yeti. That is true. Six talking foot about seven uh, Yeti. Talking about the new movie Smallfoot sounds right up my alley. That's right. This week we are joined by two special guests behind the new animated motion picture. 
the animated adventure for all ages with an all-star cast and original music, Smallfoot. Yeah. We've got director and screenwriter Carrie Kirkpatrick and his brother, songwriter and musician Wayne Kirkpatrick. Smallfoot is out September 28th this week. When is that? Friday? That is Friday. And its first tagline is, there's been a giant myth understanding, which (sighs) I appreciate. I love puns. Greatly. (laughs) Basically, that little tagline does a good job in describing how Smallfoot turns a myth upside down when a bright young yeti finds something he thought didn't exist. A human And for us here at TMBTG Pod, you know full well that music is an exponentially essential part of the heart and soul of life. You know, we really do live through it. We tell our stories with it. We feel in it like little magical horcruxes, but not the ones that are harboring demonic mad ego bits of a horrifying wizard soul. But especially in animation, Music finds a way to universally tell this little story through super quirky and catchy hit tunes that aren't really just for the kids. Oh, I know. Uh, I have seen a lot of uh, animation in my day, a lot of kids' movies. In my day? A lot of uh, things that have made me weep uncontrollably, and it's always tied to the music. This one particularly is about a yeti named Migo, who, contrary to the rest of his community, believes very passionately in mythical beings that they call smallfoot or humans. And when he finally meets a smallfoot, the whole world turns upside down and sets into motion little lessons about friendship and bravery and curiosity. And it's all told through a shimmering little musical mosaic featuring the Channing Tatum, the James Corden, the Zendaya, the LeBron James, and Common. Smallfoot was directed by Carrie Kirkpatrick. You might know him from his work on beloved films like Chicken Run and James and the Giant Peach. The Kirkpatrick brothers are well impressive. Carrie is an Annie Award winning director of Over the Hedge and, as I mentioned, an Annie nominee for the screenplays for Chicken Run and James and the Giant Peach. And he's done so many films in his career. Just the list is endless, and you'll yeah. recognize every single one of them. It's too long to even go on. I think those are some highlights, though. I think those are highlights. Meanwhile, Wayne, his brother, collaborator, also on the podcast, mm-hmm. leading voice in the world of songwriting, particularly country, having written songs for Faith Hill and Garth Brooks, and everyone all the way to Peter Frampton and Eric Clapton. It's amazing. He's also the so-called fifth member of Little Big Town, (laughs) having written some of their most beloved songs. And Carrie and Wayne worked on the music for Smallfoot together as well, but this obviously isn't their first collaboration, which you'll hear more about during the conversation. The brothers wrote the Tony Award-nominated Broadway smash Something Rotten and are actually in the process of writing another musical, an adaptation of Mrs. Doubtfire. I'm so excited for that. I do have a pie on my face currently. Yeah. So there's that. Definitely. So not only, what we're saying is not only is this episode discussing film music and the performance thereof, also Broadway music and the performance thereof. Mm -hmm. I think that deserves a five-star review on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. Leave us a five-star rating and in that rating, tell us what your first concert was and we'll give you a shout out live on the pod. 
We've had so many amazing shout-outs so far, but this week we have our first one. That's right. We've got a shout-out for the incomparable Matt Latham, who told us an amazing story of multiple first gigs, including a seven-pound ticket for the Killers, his first mosh pit, and how Los Campesinos changed his musical life forever. I'm going to give a direct quote here because it's a particularly good one. That was the gig that released the gig-goer in me. I slowly started going to gigs to the point where I was averaging at least once a week. That's a good number. That's not bad. I like that. Well done, Matt. My friends know me for going to live music. Thanks for the podcast. It's one of the highlights of my week. Oh, man. Thank you, Matt. Honestly, it's amazing to have you listening, and it's so lovely to have really kindness from internet strangers. And uh, we are now truly entering a little brave new world. So carry on listening, Matt, and others, and all the people that have already sent us your shout outs. We're going to be shouting them out on the podcast episodes to come. So this week, again, let's go back. I chatted with Carrie and Wayne about what it was like to write a rap song for Common, watching your songs being sung by Channing Tatum and James Corden, and how exactly musical animation becomes a reality. Excitement is afoot. Nobody likes my pun? Pod puppy? I'm sure you'll get a kick out of it. <laughs> Start off on the right foot this week. You've got so many. Yeti or not, here they come. That one's my favorite. This is me, Carrie and Wayne. Enjoy. Was this the first one, the first premiere that you've had so far? Yeah, a nice blue carpet affair. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, we had a we had a friends and family screening the week before, and but this was the biggie with all of our cast there, and it was nice. Gosh, yeah. how many years have you actually been working on Smallfoot? I actually came onto the project in uh, July of 2016, just over two years. It was in development before I came on board. Too, too long years. Yeah. <laughs> but I mean, in terms of the extent of time spent on animation movies and movies in general, that doesn't seem too long. No. How long has the production been in total? About six years. Oh, my gosh. Uh, that's crazy. Yeah, I mean, and that's really sort of counting the day that they decided, yeah, let's make this uh, Yeti movie. Right. Um, <laughs> right. And the guys who had been consistently on that from the beginning are John Requa and Glenn Ficarra. Mm. They're the ones who kind of found the project with Sergio Pablos. And they went down a path. Sergio is the guy who created a the book. Me and, yes, right. I, I keep getting asked questions. It's like, why can't I find this book? I mean, it, it's kind of a book that he wrote and self-published as a pitch book. Oh. As a, as a proof of concept. You know, it was sort of yes. like, and he called it Yeti Tracks. And and it basically was were a lot of gags of a yeti, you know, uh, mm-hmm. finds a human, and, and both mm-hmm. of them think the other is a monster, and and they're kind of <laughs> running from each other. So that's the basic core idea, which is still at the center of it. Mm-hmm. And then they, you know, as these things go, John and Glenn were on board. They were developing it with Sergio for a year. His animation studio is in Spain, and mm-hmm. then everybody at Warner Brothers said this is a little too difficult. It being in Spain. Oh gosh. Yeah. Uh, difficult uh, yeah. so then they brought it back over here that's when they connected with sony imageworks to do the animation and so developed it over here and you know these things often go through several different 
teams and iterations before they kind of find their footing. And then right. the actual Warner Brothers studio changed the leadership. Oh, right wow. When I came on. Gosh, was that challenging at all to come in with that shift happening? I, I want to say it was probably a blessing in disguise because, you know, what can happen is, so the project had been in development at that point for about three and a half years. And what can often happen at that phase is that all the people who have been on board at this point have tried a few different versions and you keep running into, you know, whoever the current head of the studio is. Mm. You know, they, they, control, they control the purse strings, they control... You know, um, you got to get a studio excited about the project that mm-hmm. they're going to go release, and and you can see a few iterations and start to lose perspective, just because you know you start to second guess the idea. And so the fact that it changed hands and some new new fresh eyes, right? It's kind of like a start over, mm, new lease on on life for the film. Yeah, yeah. It's fascinating though, especially considering how even just you coming on few years after it's already been in production, that could also, there's so many things and so many moving parts. So you also came on with fresh eyes. And so you were also probably that entity to the people that were working on it as well. Yeah. And what happened was, you know, the head of Warner Brothers, they they, they switched. And so they had a new head, uh, Toby Emmerich, who was running New Line, got bumped up mm-hmm. to be head of the whole studio. And then uh, Chris Defaria, who sort of was the first one who bought the project. He moved on to become the new CEO of DreamWorks Animation. Oh, wow. And Allison Abate, who was a seasoned animation producer who had produced a lot of, she did Iron Giant. Yes. And she was doing the Scooby-Doo thing for Warner Brothers. And so they moved her into the head of Warner Animation Group role. And one of the first things that she did, and then Courtney Valenti became the new president mm. of Warner Brothers, and she was our executive on it. And um, so in a way, all the greatest champions of the project kind of moved into more powerful positions. And Allison and Courtney in January sat me down and said, could this be a musical? Yes. Because Allison had seen musical that Wayne and I had written that was on Broadway called Something Rotten. Yes, right, and yeah. Yeah, so she she was like, he loves musicals, he loves animated musicals, and she said, you know, I think music only helps to elevate an animated movie emotionally. It actually helps sometimes with the economy of storytelling to do things through songs. So she said, is it too late to make this a musical? Because, you know, typically when you're making things musical, you want to start from the ground start up. From and, the, and yeah, start your... from scratch. Yeah. So it kind of became, could we find musical moments in the things that we have? And I went, so that's when I was like, I don't know. So I called Wayne and sort of pitched it to him. Cause, and we were in the middle of writing our next Broadway thing. So, oh, yeah, is that your Mrs. Doubtfire? The yeah, musical, yeah, we, right? Okay. We had, we had kind of just started on that and we're in early phases. So, we wrote an opening number and then we wrote the song uh, Wonderful Life and kind of put those out there, storyboarded them and put them out there for people to take a look at. And I guess that was around by March. They were like, yeah, I think, I think this could support being a musical. And we wrote the other uh, four songs. That was when I really kind of perked up and, you know, I've always wanted to work on an animated musical. And especially with your brother, did that help you connect to the storyline as well, even more so? For me, honestly, it was that little spark that made it uh, different and challenging enough that kind of raises your level, makes mm-hmm. you raise raise your game. I mean, I've 
I've written a lot of animated yes. <laughs> in the last 30 years. Yeah. And um, to think about it differently and to think about it as a musical structure and what the next musical number would be and what mm. sequences that we already had could be musicalized just kind of got me all the more excited. So it made it made the approach to cracking story a little more fresh. Where did this all start? Were you writing and playing together when you were younger? Or was it just something that really grew as you both went into your own and onto your own trajectory? It kind of, this is Wayne. Oh, hi, Wayne. We've always, hi. We've always kind of dabbled in each other's careers to begin with. You know, um, there was always kind of the um, feed of that. And we always talked about ultimately writing a musical together. So Carrie would write, have a music idea, a song idea that would plug into something that I was working on in the music world, or I would have a story idea that that we would get together and knock out, you know. As kids, we did, I mean, we were kind of raised in the South in a church atmosphere. So we did... We did sing in church together. Our dad was the ah. minister of music. He was very musical. So we did like pageants and sang yes. at church. Oh. And, <laughs> wow. Yeah. yeah. I remember at that camp, we both learned how to play the guitar at the same Bible camp, believe it or not. So Wait, some how dude old were you? Wayne's three years older. So I he was, was, I was, uh, it was the summer before I went into the ninth grade, I think. I was, okay. I was 14. So pretty young. Yeah. We were both playing piano. Mm-hmm. We were both taking piano lessons. <laughs> and at this point, then I was playing trumpet in the band. You were playing saxophone. Yeah. Uh, but guitar is just way cooler. The ladies like the uh, like. <laughs> oh the yeah. Playing. You don't, you don't you don't bring a date home and play your trumpet. Play your trumpet. <laughs> Although a yeah. saxophone and trumpet is, is so often linked to genres that are, are seen as romantic and sexy and cool. Yeah. So it's so strange yeah, you, how that like disconnect happens. But yeah, no, I totally, I totally get what you're saying. You may move more into the songwriting, right? I mean, Wayne sort of took to the guitar. I was 14, 15, mm. you know, which, um, you know, you're thinking about a lot of stuff then. <laughs> and I, I found songwriting to be very, um, uh, you know, a way to um, communicate, express, explore what I was feeling, you know, express mm. what I was feeling, you know, that kind of thing. So I started writing songs when, when I was in high school and it was very therapeutic, you know. We were both in bands and we weren't necessarily mm. in the same band, but we would play some stuff together. And then right out of high school, my senior year of high school and Wayne was out, we wrote a musical together. That, that wasn't very good. Um, <laughs> what was it called? Still, it was called Stages. Oh, um, literal. It was about a performing okay. arts high school. And, yeah. Um, I mean, it was not... Great. I mean, it... We were just we didn't really know what we were doing. Yeah, um, I'm sure it wasn't terrible. It was, yeah, just the first time. Yeah, no, it was pretty terrible. Um, <laughs> oh, uh, damn, I was trying to make you nah, feel I mean, better. Say, <laughs> it was just kind of, it was a little aimless. I mean, we were mm-hmm. throwing darts in the dark, to be yeah, honest. Of course, but, um, of course, yeah. But that was, uh, yeah, so that was in the mid 80s, would have been. 85 or so 84 and then that but that kind of like oh we started talking about doing other things and then Wayne went off and had a really you know successful music career in Nashville around this time I went to film school and then got a job at Disney Animation in 1988 and I 
the other guy that we wrote that musical with, he and I got a, a deal together at Disney to write animated musicals to develop them there. So Mike had a studio there and for three years was developing animated musicals with him. And Wayne was off establishing his music career. And then when I, then we wrote some movies together and then, um, 95, we kind of came up with the idea for something rotten, but my screenwriting career was taking off and his record producing career. So literally it would be like, Oh, when I finish this next movie, maybe we yes. should work on that. Right. That <laughs> yeah. And then I would finish and he'd be like, well, I'm starting a new record. So when would you be done? Oh, probably <laughs> in a year. Okay. Well, oh, cool. and then he'd finish that record and, and yeah. I'd be like, Oh, well now I'm doing this animated movie. That's going to take three years. And so it, it kind of <laughs> went back and forth. I got away from music was always a part of my life, but professionally I got away from Mm. No, every project I was on, like I was on James and the Giant Peach. They wanted it to have songs in it. I tried to get us, you know, a song in it, but they went with Randy Newman, you know. Mm. Uh, (laughs) And um, it kind of went on like that for for a while. We tried to get a song into Chicken Run, an original song, but they went with an existing one, Mm. uh, that band song. You know, just every opportunity I was always trying to insinuate myself you know, yes. use, use whatever influence I had. But so finally the, the Broadway musical became a calling card, you know. Absolutely. Uh, and don't you think that the evolution of animation also has changed in such that so many trendier and most recent animated musicals have really bolstered fresh and new singers and songwriters? So whereas, you know, you'd have these musicals coming out and you'd have well-known artists giving their songs to the musicals but now I find that the the outsourcing is so much more independent just looking at Frozen and looking at all the different ones that have come out recently Coco those guys come from from Broadway actually yeah Um, that's so interesting I never thought I never saw the connection for some reason it sounds really stupid now to admit that but it does make sense that there is that theatrical aspect of of a musical that can translate into film. But Bobby Lopez that um, wrote Frozen, Bobby and his, and his wife, Kristen, they come from Broadway. Uh, Pasek and Paul, who wrote yeah. um, The Greatest Showman, they're, they're Broadway, uh, they're starting Broadway. So, yeah, Lynn manuel Miranda. Yeah. And, uh, but even what, yes, started, exactly. what started the animated musical Renaissance, mm. When I started at Disney in 1988, they were making Oliver and Company, mm. and they had like Billy Joel wrote some songs for that, you know. Yes. And of course, they got they got Elton John to write Lion King, but they got Tim Rice from Broadway to write the lyrics. And what started it all though was Little Mermaid and Beauty and the Beast, and that was uh, Alan, Minkin. Alan Minkin and Howard Ashman who had written Little Shop of Horrors. I mean, Disney Disney was very good about, and I will say it's a lot of it is Chris Montan at Disney, mm. uh, who's been who's been a part of that forever, but really understanding that if you want to have a, a show that feels musical, that has some cohesion, that you need some guys who understand what it's like. Absolutely, yeah. To write to songs in, Yeah. Uh, well, to, uh, to understand... Uh, songs as scenes or songs mm-hmm. as character development um, as opposed to just trying to shove a pop song. Inside, uh, absolutely. In. Yeah. That, that had a different intention. Who, yeah. And Disney, I would say Disney um, understood that and that 
that kind of started uh, that trend. So, so what kind of music then, if you were part of, you know, the church and had music all around you, for both of you, what then, what did you listen to when you were younger? Well, for me, Wayne. <laughs> uh, I can I can tell the difference now. <laughs> okay, okay. Um, I would say uh, a, a lot of I guess my formative years of musically speaking were in the seventies, and um, mm-hmm. so so uh, groups like like the Eagles, uh, all the singer songwriters of like everything from James Taylor, Jackson Brown, Ooh. Fleetwood Mac, um, Dan Fogelberg, you know, Dan Fogelberg mm-hmm. all of this, you know. A lot of singer songwriter, acoustic guitar singer songwriter artists, and um, and then beyond. But uh, you know, also those, you know, Billy Joel, Elton John, the era that we were being raised, sort of in a church. They mm-hmm. were kind of small churches, and there was this era in the late seventies where all the church music kind of had this folk rock kind of, you know. Right. I mean, it, we were doing some. There were. I love like the melodies of old Baptist hymns, but it wasn't a lot of um, Southern gospel. You know, it wasn't yes. that kind of thing. It, it was more of an acoustic guitar driven kind of folksy, um, you know, uh, all that kind of stuff. For me, it was California country. Is really yeah. what it yeah. was, which was, which was, which was what all of that, uh, the artists, the Laurel Canyon yeah. artists, you know, the, whether it's Jackson Brown and, you know, Johnny uh, Mitchell Johnny and Crosby, Stills and Nash and Oof, the, yeah. all the good stuff. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But then in 19, I mean, really in 1980, I, I got into um, musical theater in a big way, mm-hmm. started doing musicals. So I would say if you looked at my record collection, would have had James Taylor, some John Denver, mm-hmm. some Amy Grant. And then a ton of show tunes. That's uh, show cast <laughs> Yeah. There's so much between the two of you. Did you have a favorite childhood uh, movie, that movie musical? Was there something that you watched also when you were both younger? It would be almost all Sherman Brothers stuff. Okay. Yeah. So all the Sherman Brothers, which were not, were not musical. But the, on the musical side, you know, Sound of Music in Oklahoma and mm-hmm. Music Man and had those albums as well mm-hmm. and and then um so as because really uh growing up in in louisiana mm-hmm. didn't really have access to a lot of musical theater so you'd get it you know, from watching the movies that were made you know the king and i you know oh, other hammerstein rogers and hammerstein movies that were made in you know m- musicals that were made into movies but i was heavily i mean pinocchio jungle book oh yeah lady in the train oh the cat Oh my god! Um, I probably still have my VHS of Lady and the Tramp. I think I watched it so many times I like burnt the burnt the tape. I would say the Pinocchio was my favorite. Mm. I mean, it terrified me as a kid. Yeah, yeah. Those songs are so great, and mm. the Jungle Book songs are so great. And then things like Mary Poppins and Chitty Chitty Bang Bang. Oh gosh! Um, yeah, those songs were just a huge. And the um. Uh, Tom Sawyer and Huckleberry Finn, which were also Sherman Brothers mm-hmm. music, um, which were live action. But um, yeah, there were a lot of a lot of those kind of uh, Disney movies that um, that were musical oriented. They were they mm-hmm. were just great great songs with great hooks, you know, great melodies, and um, 
I mean, you, you hear them once and could sing them, you know. Absolutely. That's what the Sherman brothers were. Yeah, the Sherman brothers were great at. There's this, obviously this innocence that it appeals to, to children and, and adults alike, but there's also this aspect of creating a storyline around songs. So as you mentioned earlier, how it really elevates storytelling. But when you're younger and you're a child and things hit, you don't even know what you're really singing because you don't, your, your vocab hasn't formed properly, but you are attaching yourself to the story, the melody and the words. It like kind of keeps you very busy, you know, creatively in your head when you are watching a musical or an animation. Yeah. And it is, it is interesting you say that because you are, when you're young, you're so impressionable and to mm. especially whatever you're interested in and if you know if you're interested in how music is handled in a movie you know and what it does to to you when you know it sticks with you and then something in you goes oh i want to do that i want (laughs) to figure out how to (laughs) well look at you both yeah (laughs) it's true so were a lot of bands coming through and were you even allowed to go watch Live music. How how oh, yeah. was that aspect of your lives? How did that pan out? Well, we went to concerts. I went to a lot of concerts. Yeah. Do you remember your was, first concert? Yes, I do. I remember mine. What was it? It was uh, it was Olivia Newton John, and the opening act was Paul Williams. No way! Wow. <laughs> how old were you? I must have been twelve. Yeah. Did you guys go together, or or were you with your with your family? Well, I went with my mom. Okay. I. I was in love with Olivia Newton-John, and um, <laughs> and I was I couldn't wait to go to the concert, and I got the chicken pox. Oh and, no! Oh no! And, and so I had them recorded <laughs> on a on a little cassette recorder. Yeah, and illegally. It was, um, <laughs> no, I'm joking. Yeah, but just for my own use. Yes. You know, it's not distributed. Just, and um. And then I I laid in my bed that night when I came home and listened to the concert. Oh my, gosh, it's amazing! Chickenpox state, you know. Oh. <laughs> but I remember going to see Peter Frampton, oh. the Doobie Brothers, Heart, Sticks. Yeah, we saw all of us. Yeah, um, the Kinks. Saw, I saw John Denver, I saw Dan Fuller, I saw the Eagles. Oh my God, you saw um, the Kinks? But, and you mentioned yeah. Peter Frampton. I know, Wayne, your songs have been recorded, obviously, by Total Legends, and Peter Frampton is in that list. So when you were young, yes, did, worked, yeah, that's crazy that you landed up working with somebody like that as well. He's he's such a lovely guy. Yeah, yeah. he is, and I just... I got the opportunity to work with him and a friend of mine, Gordon Kennedy, uh, when he were, they were working on songs for Almost Famous, that mm-hmm. movie. Mm-hmm. And so that was really great because we um, did did demos for those songs at my studio in Nashville, and Peter Frampton was playing guitar and singing the vocals, and it was like, okay, I'm back in 1975 now, <laughs> you know. And I actually sat with the, I don't know if you're familiar with the Frampton Comes Alive album or how much you're familiar with it, but there's a, Very, there's a yeah. song on there. Yeah. Okay, so there's a song on there called Penny for Your Thoughts that is yes. an acoustic guitar piece. And I was with Peter Frampton at his studio. And I was like, what guitar did you play on that? And he, he, it was like this Epiphone guitar. I was like, how, does that, how did you play that song? And he sat down and played it for me. What? He gave me a little... 
no yeah. oh my gosh he's so that type of guy though even when i've interviewed him a few times and he'll like play or sing the tune of a guitar or something he's yeah. such a he's it's like running through his blood it's impossible not to yeah. you know not to feel that passion from him such a great player but yeah that was such a cool moment when it's like i got my own private little concert of skinny for your oh song. my gosh I can't, I can't even imagine, especially as a fan, to just like be one-on-one -on -one with that. That must have been just crazy. Yeah. So just to go back to the movie a little bit, what part of the process were you involved in in terms of the casting? Because obviously there's such a star-studded cast for this film, but there's so many, you know, you've got Zendaya, you've got Common. Like, who chose those artists to be part of it? And were you fans of, of, of them before they signed on for the project? Yeah, well, I was involved. I mean, I, I was casting everyone. Channing was the first on board. So we had, our, we had cast Channing and Zendaya and Common. Let me see. Those were the first three, I think, before we decided to make it a musical. Oh, wow. Okay. And then that's, we sort of naively, lucky. when we said, yeah, I know, when we like, we can make it, and it was, we kind of naively went, well, uh, you know, Zendaya's the singer. She can yes. sing. And that was like, does Channing sing? Uh, and we found that he was in the Coen Brothers' Hail Caesar, and he did a number, and it's like, mm -hmm. oh, well, he could sing. But when we started, when we first wrote the opening number, and I was working with Channing, I did, I'd said to him, uh, hey, we're going to make it a musical, I think. He's like, oh, okay. He kind of looked a little concerned, and I said, "And you, you might, have, you might have to sing a couple lines in the. It's a big group number. The opening. Yes. Don't worry about it. It's a group number." He was like, "Yeah, okay, cool." And then later, when we played the song, it's like, "Yeah, we kind of we gave you a little more. You kind of have the whole song." Basically. Um, so basically, you sing the was, whole song. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> you know what? He is. He's a great guy, and and was just all in. Just came to the studio and was like, "All right, I'll." I'll give it a shot. And you know what? If it's terrible, just find someone who sounds like me. And Maybe I, I, really, I really want that. And uh, he, was, he was great. I mean, he, Zendaya, was, was, we kind of somewhat ignorantly went like, yeah, she can sing. And just not being mindful at all that she might have existing record deals that make mm -hmm. this complicated. And, yeah. and uh, you know, oftentimes when you have artists who have existing record deals, it becomes a, a bit of a, a legal yeah, nightmare. nightmare so much so much yeah. so, so much so that it be, kind of becomes like that the um the artist is like oh, i wish this weren't such a drag i wish i could just sing a song and it Absolutely. you know it weren't so so complicated but we figured it out luckily you know zenday obviously loves loves to sing and it's very musical and and um has a great voice i think it gets complicated by some of her existing you know the business side of it that makes Absolutely. it less you know, honestly, um, it, it, it ended up working out great. All of these stars, so that they're obviously in a list in front of me, all the stars that, you know, the cast. So do they all sing? I mean, you've got James Corden as well, as I mentioned, Common. Do they all sing in the musical or do they, is it only some of them? Well, yeah, interestingly, after we wrote those two songs, mm -hmm. then it was like, okay, what else, what else can we bring music to? And Bonnie, our producer, we had this scene which was a common character, the stonekeeper. It was this big pivotal scene in the movie where he takes Migo down and shows him this cave of secrets that we called it. And it was kind of the history of the Yetis and, uh, relationship with man. And Bonnie just said, I think this should be a rap song and common should rap it. Oh man. Make it Go Bonnie. And, uh, yeah. That's such a good idea. 
And I was like, oh, that's a good idea. And on the <laughs> literally on the drive home, leaving me you on know, my wheels are spinning, and on the drive home, I kind of came up with this um, with this phrase, "Let it lie," and a little little tune in my head of, and kind of just went home and uh, banged out a demo uh, of this core and, and wrote some lyrics and then sent it to Wayne the next day. That was the easiest one to write, weirdly. Oh, really? I, yeah, I think I started it, wrote some lyrics and sent it to him. He was like, all right, because we had a whole, we had a scene. See, we had, I just, I sent him the scene and said, you know, here, you can see what I'm doing. I put, mm -hmm. I put this part of the scene into some rhyming lyric and then he took the other part of the scene and, and then we worked, you know, on all the the music tracks together, and and uh, so that that turned out really well. And then when I met with James, I had told him there might be some music in it. Yeah, I knew he liked it. And uh, that's when we he his scene takes place in a karaoke bar, and we were trying to write an original song, but then somebody, I guess maybe it was me, I said maybe it should start like a a karaoke track that we're familiar with, but we, the surprise is we have a different melody and different lyrics. Um, I said, and I just kind of talked off the cuff. I said something like, you know, like maybe under pressure, because that's, that's exactly what he's mm. feeling. Then I said that to Wayne and he kind of started like, what about something like this? You know, sent me this, this idea built around under pressure. And I was like, Oh, well, maybe this might work. And like, we storyboarded it to see if it would work. But before we went too far on it, we had to get Queen and David Bowie estate permission, which took a little bit of oh gosh wrangling yeah, to, I'm to sure. let them know we weren't going to mess it up. But we ended up getting an email from Brian May saying, I love it, you know. Oh my uh, God. <laughs> and then, How uh, crazy is that? Like taking that risk as well. In the moment, you're, you're being as creative as possible, thinking what will fit the best. But then, obviously, all the logistics and stuff comes after. Is that moment really scary? Like when you're waiting to hear back from people, or did you do you just take it on the chin? Like, oh, I'll figure something else out if this doesn't work out. Well, we stopped. I mean, we wrote something and then said, let's not keep working on it until we find right. out if there's even a, a chance that we're going to get this. Well, that's but, smart. Um, yeah. But they were they were pretty great. This whole thing started with um, now. Why does the Queen bass player's name escape me? Probably because he laid so low, but um, he was just in the studio and came up with that doom, 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 doom mm -hmm. you know, started playing that. And Brian, Are you that oh, just... were you asking who the bassist of Queen is? Yeah. Oh, John. Yeah. John Deacon. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So he, he, he came up with that, uh, that bass riff. This Brian May wrote this to us in a letter and he said, yes. and then we just kind of, we improvised around that bass riff. And that's why, because the song is not, it doesn't follow any kind of traditional structure, you know. Mm -hmm. The only thing it has is that that baseline and the under pressure as it's, but it it has all these different movements and variations and and he said they were just they improved it and then Freddie and uh, David Bowie were in two different rooms, doing oh. their own thing, and uh, there's a there's a funny there's a video on YouTube that shows how this happened that. Freddie Mercury was off doing his thing and then David Bowie was supposed to do his thing separately and they were going to just sort of see what they came up with. It was kind of yeah. a big sort of art art experiment. And then apparently Freddie Mercury was listening to David Bowie. It's like, how does how does his stuff like <laughs> you know yeah. and what he, what he didn't know is that David Bowie snuck around and listened to what he was doing. Uh, <laughs> sounds anyway. great. Yeah, it sounds like Bowie. That's amazing. But, but Brian May said to us in this 
email. He's like, so the way I see it, you're basically just continuing the improvisation around this melody. So good luck. Wow. Which I thought was pretty cool. Totally, um, especially because th this is your life's work as well. And you as an art, both of you are artists. So also appreciating art is such an important part of what you do as well. So you never want to muck up anything. And the fact that you got your seal of approval in that way is uh, yeah. kind of kind of a really beautiful thing. Yeah. So, well, we, so the, we yeah. We're such, yeah. I mean, I, I still remember the first time I heard Killer Queen and it just blew my mind, you know. So, yeah. um, so we were, you were such fans. Absolutely. I would never want to do anything that, that they didn't feel. Absolutely. Other, you know. I have to ask, is LeBron, because I know LeBron is obviously, he's on the cast list. Does he sing? Did you get him to sing at all? So LeBron in the movie is part of this thing called the SES, which is the Smallfoot Evidentiary Society. And, and they're the ones who are... <laughs> kind of believe in smallfoot and conspiracy theorists like there's a big cover-up and yes. and um and we kept getting pushed to it's like it'd be great for the ses to have a song because one of the guys who plays it is eli uh, he he sings gina rodriguez i mean she kind of she's in like lin-manuel miranda's song maria for hurricane maria relief so everybody kept being saying like it'd be great if the ses had a song we just we didn't have enough real estate to give them a whole musical number. Yes. Uh, but we would have tried to get LeBron to rap because I've heard him, but uh, it would have had to have been a short song. Um, it would have also been pretty difficult because LeBron was great, but he was in the middle of basketball season for this whole thing. And, oh and my uh, gosh. We, we, thought, uh, we thought we'll get him when the season ends. And then they just kept winning and went all the way to the finals. <laughs> and it was a, so that was, it made scheduling kind of difficult. Oh, sure. But a lot of fans really happy. So, you know, that's amazing. And then also, I know that you mentioned the musical, the next musical that you are both working on for Kevin McCollum. Uh, is that, when is that coming out? Earlier, you mentioned how you and Wayne also have to work through your schedules. You know, Wayne's working on a record and you doing a movie and then you, you have to meet in the middle. So how have you made time to work on this musical together and, and how is it going? Well, they have been patiently, I mean, first it was annoying for them that I said, I'm going to take this movie and I'm going to direct it. And they're like, um, how's that? <laughs> oh, I'll keep writing. Don't worry. And uh, they've been very patient for two years. And and I've managed to, we have our other partner, John O'Farrell, on that. So we we did somehow manage, while I was directing this movie, to write a draft of Mrs. Doubtfire, and we got about eight songs in various phases. They were very patiently waiting, but then, to their annoyance, when Smallfoot became a musical, and I sucked Wayne into that as well, that did uh, slow Doubtfire down a little bit. So they, they are very anxious us to finish as soon as possible so that we can get something up and get it going which is what we're in the middle of now so um, i mean that's crazy you're working i mean i'm sure that that's how your creativity thrives by working on multiple projects at the same time but so do you know when it will be out i don't you know my guess would be 20 um 2020 i mean my they they are ambitiously hoping that we might have something about a year from now to, to mount somewhere mm -hmm. out of town somewhere or in some lab or something which is uh it's not it's not out of the question it just depends on how good we are i guess how, how successful we are out of the out of the gate how is it i know that i'm sure people ask you all the time you know there's a lot of iconic 
brother duos in 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 the industries but how has it really been to be able to forge your own careers and also collaborate on on these you know such high stakes levels on such fun things how has that been to work together all these years it's been nice to kind of have that realized because like mm. i said we we have kind of because we kind of dabbled in each other's careers through the years but to find something that we could finally do together we have a lot of similar sensibilities uh, a similar sense of humor music taste you know we have all of that so it's really uh, and because we also have the history together we we kind of can speak <laughs> without speaking you know right we, yes you know almost like finishing each other's thoughts kind of kind of thing you know and um the the references that we can make it's like you know remember that thing we did back in you know when we were 10 <laughs> you know yes yeah um, or whatever so um that familial so really, telepathy yeah that's amazing it, yeah yeah we get along well and so it's it's really been great it's really been great for this to be the next phase or a mm. part of the next phase is to mm. include um family yeah. It just makes it more economical too. Like our parents are here, so they only have to go to one, <laughs> one thing. You know, when I we're involved, you're it's so the same caring. thing. Yes, yeah. They don't. They don't have. They don't to have to fly. <laughs> oh yes, I wanted to ask you: Do you have a favorite song that you've both written? Is it the same song, or do you each have a have a favorite of your own for the movie? I would say mine is is Wonderful Life. I like that one. I also I. I'm really happy with the way "Let It Lie" the the rap song, the rap song. turned out. Cool. But I think it's um, for me partly is because of um, I'm thinking of it also just as the whole sequence. Yes. Um, so I'm thinking of it not only as co-songwriter but as director as well. I mean, I, I, li- I really like Absolutely. the way that sequence um, turned out. Amazing. This Must Be The Gig is produced by Adam Kibble and we'd like to thank Billy Yost and The Kickback for our theme song, Rube, and buy their music at thekickbackband.com, Lexi Frame for the artwork, Daniel Brater and Dean Berger for the additional sound design, and The Consequence Podcast Network where you'll find a bunch of other amazing shows. listened this far why not go the extra mile and leave us a review on apple podcasts or wherever you find your podcasts your comments provide valuable feedback for us and it helps other people find us too for information on new episodes be sure to follow us on facebook twitter or instagram at tmbtg pod and generally just irritate everyone you know about the show thanks again and i miss you all week
Consequence Podcast Network.